Hello, this is Richard E. Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about the deep longings of the soul. I hope you enjoy it. Now this morning I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to share some information with you on modern life as kind of a way of introduction. As you'll note, some of this is opinion, but it, it's, it, these are opinions from very well-credentialed people. And if nothing else, I think you'll find this very interesting. I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but the span of recorded human history is roughly 5,000 years. Think about that, 5,000 years. In other words, all we have that has ever been recorded and documented by human beings, it only goes back 5,000 years. And I was thinking about this on the way over this morning. I'm 56, so 1% of those 5,000 years I've been alive. Some of you have almost been 2%. I've noticed we got... Uh... <laughs> now I share this because uh, I'm going to read three different statements about us, about people who live in the modern era that sets us apart from all other people that have lived in human history. Or let's put it this way, in recorded human history. And the first statement that I'm going to read to you comes from a guy by the name of Peter Kreef. He's a brilliant man. He teaches philosophy at Boston College. He's written over 50 books. He's highly regarded, has great credentials. In fact, ironically, he's going to be in Birmingham speaking at one of the fixed point luncheons that Larry Taunton does in a couple of weeks. But in one of his books, he made this statement, which I found quite incredible. But he said simply this, We're the first civilization, we are the first civilization that does not know why we exist. And what he's saying is, because of this, we don't know, or we don't live with a real sense of purpose in our lives, because we don't even know why we're here. I don't know if you ever give that much thought. Why do I exist? Why am I here? And he says, we're the first civilization that really doesn't have any good answers to those questions. It's interesting, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the president's prayer breakfast in Washington. This was when Bill Clinton was president. And the speaker, they always bring in a well-known speaker uh, for this particular year was Billy Graham. And before coming to Washington to make his address, Graham said that he had spent the day before at Harvard with President Derek Bach. And he said, we spent almost an hour together. And he said, as I got up to leave, I asked President Bach, what is the, 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 the number one problem you believe that the students of Harvard have to contend with? or having to deal with in their lives. And Graham said Bach didn't even have to think about it. He said very forthrightly, living with emptiness. Living meaningless lives. Now, a second quote comes from someone I quote quite often, Dr. Tim Keller. He's a very prominent Presbyterian minister in New York City. 
and he says this about our culture. We're the first culture in history where men define themselves solely by performing and achieving in the workplace. And because of this, he says, there is never, in men's lives, there has never been more psychological, social, and emotional pressure out in the workplace as there is today. You see, cultural analysts tell us that with almost universal agreement that in more traditional family-based societies in the past, a person would get their identity and meaning through family relationships. A man's status would come from fulfilling a defined social role, a son, a husband, a father. And work, interestingly, was a discipline which, of course, creates tremendous value within any social order. But it wasn't as nearly as important as the fabric of one's relationships. Because in the traditional social order, work was seen merely as a functional means of providing for the family and improving the quality of life within the community. In other words, work would not and could not define your life's worth and value in a more absolute sense as it does today. So that's an interesting observation that Keller makes. Now, I don't know how many of you know Jay Lloyd. Jay works with the center. He is our resident counselor. He's a clinical counselor. He's very good at what he does. And I was just kind of chatting with him about uh, some of uh, today's message. And he said that these first two statements that I've made or I've read to you may be why this third statement I'm going to read is true. And I shared this a couple of years ago. It comes from a Dr. Martin Seligman, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he wrote an interesting article in Psychology Today titled Boomer Blues. And he obviously had done a great deal of research on the baby boom generation, which many of us are members of. And he said he, what he did was he compared our generation with our parents' generation. In his research, he found that the rate of depression among baby boomers compared to their parents' generation is 10 times higher. 10 times, and that's the rate, not the number, the rate. And he says it's become an epidemic. And then he made this incredible statement. This is the third statement I'm going to read to you about modern people. He says, we are the most depressed generation in all of history. Now, I don't know how he comes up with that, I don't know how he comes to those conclusions, but again, this man has great credentials, and he doesn't say it lightly. And as I talked with Jay about this, and several months ago we had lunch with a, a local psychiatrist, uh, Jay and I did, you know, we want to just immediately attribute depression to biological reasons. You know, it's, it's, it's something wrong with you chemically, and there's no doubt that's an issue. But clearly there's much more to men struggling with depression. There are many other factors that are involved, including the two that I just read to you. We're the first civilization that doesn't know why we exist. And we're the first culture in history where men define them solely by performing and achieving in the workplace. Some of you may be familiar with David Brooks. 
he writes in the New York Times. He, he's, he's a fabulous writer. And he wrote an op-ed piece that was titled, They Had It Made. This is real, it was fascinating. Uh, he tells about the most fascinating longitudinal study that, that I, I'm even aware of. And I don't know if you know what a longitudinal study is. It's where you take a group of people and you study their lives, not just for six months or a year, but for decades, and try to come to conclusions from looking at their lives. And this longitudinal study was called the Grant Study. And they took 268 men back in 1938, and all of these 268 men at the time were sophomores at Harvard. And they chose what they, they described as the brightest, the most polished, the most affluent, and the most ambitious men in that sophomore class. Kind of the, the cream of the crop. <clears throat> and they studied their lives for decades. Ironically, two of these men, one of them was John F. Kennedy. Another was Ben Bradley, who was the legendary editor at the Washington Post. And after decades of studying these men's lives, they said a third of them suffered at least one major bout of depression. And this is interesting. It says almost every single one of them were plagued by alcohol addiction. Now here you have the best and brightest people in our land. And they struggled. They struggled with depression. The most depressed generation in the history of man. That's an incredible thought, incredible statement. And I don't mean to try to be or try to sound despairing, but when you take those three statements that are made about our civilization, <clears throat> you have to stop and ask yourself, what in the world has happened to us? How have we gotten to this point? How have we allowed life to become so incoherent and so pointless? Well, Seligman in that article, Baby, Baby or Boomer Blues, says we've lost the art of learning how to relate our daily lives to a bigger cause for which we are living. And then Ernest Becker, in what most people think is probably one of the most thoughtful books written in the last 30 to 40 years, The Denial of Death, which won a Pulitzer Prize, he really had somewhat of a similar take. He says, every person seems to have a need for cosmic significance. In other words, we have this need for purpose and meaning in our lives. And he said, throughout all of history, all the way up until modern times, People knew they had value, they knew they had purpose because of the transcendent, because of God. And he said throughout history, people knew their place in the universe. They knew who they were, their value, their identity. He says, but modern people, here we go again, modern people have lost that. We've lost a sense of who are we and what is our life all about? And what he says is, this is interesting, he says, what's happened? He says, we have become very secular. 
Now that word secular is an interesting word because it doesn't mean godless. Because in a secular society, you can believe in God. You can go to church. The problem is in a, in a secular society, God is irrelevant to the people living in the culture. And so I think a good question we should ask this morning in our own personal lives as we evaluate ourselves, and that is, how relevant is God in my life? I mean, do I get a sense of meaning and purpose from Him and my relationship with Him? Does He impact who I am as a man? Does He impact my character, my sense of worth and value? Or is He just out there somewhere and just doesn't really matter very much to me and to my life? Because that's the mark of a secular culture. God is there, but He's irrelevant. I was reading um, an interview from the New York Times where reporter Pat Healy interviewed Don Hewitt. I don't know if you recognize that name. If you watched 60 Minutes over the years, you would. He was the... Uh, he was executive producer for 36 years of 60 Minutes and retired. And this interview was coming <clears throat> on the heels of his retirement. Let me just read a part of it. It said, Hewitt strode into his office. He gestured toward the walls. There hung photographs of presidents, diplomats, foreign leaders, and entertainers. There were notes from presidents such as Reagan and Eisenhower. A constellation of Emmy Awards. Arrays of plaques posters, medallions. I'm not trying to be an egomaniacal maniac, but look, he said, I don't want to lower the temperature. Where the hell do you go? What do you do that's going to be like this? And the person who interviewed him said, here clearly was a man who had no idea what he was going to do with the rest of his life. <clears throat> and yet, in the interview, he seems to realize that this flamboyant, exciting life that he had led had not resulted in any real lasting satisfaction or meaning. And as you read between the lines, you recognize that Hewitt understood that over the course of his life, he had neglected his soul. Because he makes this comment in the interview, I need to find ways to feed my soul. It's pretty interesting that he could come to that self-realization about his life. And maybe that's a good question we all should step back and ask because we get so busy and frenetic in our lives that we rarely step back and ask about or consider the care of our souls. Now, I don't know if you think much about the soul or your own particular soul, 
But Dallas Willard, who is a brilliant philosopher, he teaches out at USC, in fact he was head of the philosophy department out there, says this about the soul. He says, what is running your life at any given moment is your soul. Not external circumstances or your thoughts or your intentions or even your feelings, but your soul. He said, the soul is that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. Then listen to this. He says, it is the life center of the human being. It regulates whatever is occurring in each of those dimensions and how they interact with each other and respond to surrounding events in the overall governance of your life. And then he says this, the soul of man is very deep in the sense of being basic or foundational and also in the sense that it lies almost totally beyond conscious awareness. So it's very easy to neglect your soul because it's almost beyond your own conscious awareness. But it's there. You know, one of the problems I find as men is we really don't know how to listen to the voices of our souls. And nor do we understand the deep longings of our hearts and our souls. And therefore, deep down, when it gets right down to it, we don't really know what it is that we want in life. We think we do. We're running fast. But if you step back and ask, what is it that you really want, you really desire, most men can't put their finger on it. I remember a very successful, very driven businessman suggested to me, he says, why don't you, at one of those breakfasts you have at the club, why don't you talk about what is it that really drives us as men? He says, because to be quite honest, I can't quite figure it out. And as I was preparing this, I read something I thought was quite interesting. You know, Sigmund Freud <clears throat> did not believe in God and therefore did not believe we have a soul. In other words, he believed we're just a mass of chemicals. And if you're a mass of chemicals, you can't have a soul. And if you don't have a soul, you don't have longings in the soul. But what's interesting is that he admitted that he had this deep longing in his life that he could not quite identify what it was. And he described it this way. He said, it's a longing that haunted me all of my life. So what I'd like to do, I realize this was a very lengthy introduction, but just take a few minutes to talk about our souls. The life center, as Willard says, of a human being. And I'll start by asking you a question. Have you ever thought about how, let's get more personal here, how you measure up or how you size up another man when you meet him maybe for the first time? Or maybe there's some people in this room, you don't know them personally, you know who they are. But you've, you've got an opinion of them. You've sized them up. And you know, we're always sizing up other people because we're always comparing ourselves with others. And the reason is because we seem to measure how well we're doing as men 
by comparing ourselves to other men. But you know, when we size up somebody, we always seem to use certain criteria. Think about it. The first thing you do when you meet somebody You look at their appearance, how they're dressed. And then, and generally depending on how old you are, you ask, where, you, where were you educated? You kind of want to know how intelligent they are. And then, of course, the most natural question is, what do you do for a living? You know, we're always impressed if somebody owns their own business has some big title maybe in a public corporation, but we want to, we size them up by what do you do? And then we also will look at, we'll evaluate them based on their wives. We look at their wives and then we size them up. We want to know where they live. What kind of car do you drive? What kind of vacations do you take? If you have hobbies, what is your Handicap. And then finally, this is interesting. I'm, I'm realizing as I have young kids. What about his kids? Are they accomplished? Where do they go to college? And I would ask you guys if this is that unwritten criteria that we use. I'm curious. How well do you measure up? <coughs> You know, as I look at my own life, if I use that criteria, I'm not so sure I do that well. I mean, I think you'd be impressed with my wife. <laughs> but everything else, I'm not sure about. You know, the, in reality, guys, the problem with this criteria, it's all about the externals. It's all external. You know, think about, as you think back on your life, and as you look at there, so we have some younger men here today. You know, most men, as they leave the academic world, they go out into the workplace, and they have a vision for their life and for their future. And generally that vision is based on how successful they can be in the visible, measurable dimensions of life. You see, we all have this outer public life that everybody sees. And everybody judges us by. You know, it's a part of our life that we feel compelled. We have to manage this well. Because people are looking. And it's the source, we believe, of our worth and identity as men. However, we seem to have forgotten we don't just have this outer public life. We have our inner private world. We have our inner life. We have our souls. That life center that Willard speaks of. And this is the part of us which usually remains hidden from the rest of the world. Nobody else sees it. And let me tell you what goes on in our inner life. As life gets more and more difficult, and as we struggle, and as we experience pain, we try to make sense of it. And generally we have all kind of private struggles concerning maybe our marriage, again, our sense of worth, spiritual questions. 
What's life all about? Issues that nobody ever talks about. And so what happens so often, particularly as we struggle in life as men, we withdraw. We isolate ourselves. Outwardly, everything seems to be well. Inwardly, though, we're withdrawn. You know, it's almost as if we have a divided self. We have this outer public world that everybody sees, and we have this inner private world that generally only we're aware of. I read something recently, I think, that provides pretty good insight in what we're talking about. This was written by a guy named Miroslav Volf, who is a theologian at Yale Divinity School. And he says, you know, when you get right down to it, there's two types of wealth in this life. He says there is richness of having. Richness of having, which is all external. And then he says there is richness of being, which is in our, in, in our internal innermost being. And this is what's so fascinating. He says modern man is totally focused on richness of having because he says we believe this is where happiness lies. He says, but this is where it is so ironical, almost a paradox. He says we seek richness of having, but what we're really longing for is richness of being. He says we foolishly scramble after richness of having because somehow we've come to think it will produce richness of being. And he says, but it never does. And the reason is, is because it can't. He says you can have a barn full of money, a boatload of talent, and movie star good looks, yet be spiritually impoverished. And you know, the best example of that today is Tiger Woods. A wise man said to me about Tiger Woods and what's just come out into the public. He said, Tiger had everything and traded it for nothing. And he said, the reason is because he had a hole in his soul and was trying to fill, to fill it experientially. with unbridled sex, all done in secret. This man went on to say, most people have a hard time processing Tiger's problems because they miss its spiritual nature. You know, I did. I, I've had more people in that, when that exploded on the news, I had more men who just, came, who just baffled by this. How could a man do this? It's because all we've ever seen and noticed is Tiger Woods public life, his external life, because externally, guys, he had it all. But what we, nobody realized is that his soul was quite destitute. And this is what I see happen in the lives of so many men who seem to have it all, and yet internally are spiritually bankrupt. You know, many people believe probably one of the most gifted writers and poets to ever live was a man by the name of Oscar Wilde. At the height of his fame, like Tiger Woods, he squandered everything. 
The only difference is he died quite young. But right at the end of his life, he penned these words. Listen to them. He said, the gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity came to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has some day to cry aloud from the housetop. And listen to this. This is interesting. He said, I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. What an incredible admission. But I ask you this question. Could this be true of any of us? I think it could. I was no longer captain of my soul, and I didn't even know it. I'd like to wind down our time together reading two different passages from the Bible to really shed some light onto this, and I think it will. The first comes, it's a simple verse that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly, externally, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. You know, guys, if we're going to live our lives for the external, which is what most men do, if we live for the outward man, as Paul uses that word, we need to know that the externals are wasting away. In fact, John says in the book of 1 John, it, they're passing away. And it starts, and you know this, with your body. It is wasting away, and your wife's body is wasting away, and your career is passing away as time goes by. And if you live for the externals of life, guys, I promise you this. As Paul says, you will lose heart as time goes by, and you will exit this life with great despair, and death will truly be your great enemy because it will take away all the external things you've invested your entire life in. The externals are wasting away. But notice what Paul says to the Christians in Corinth. He says, we don't lose heart. Though the externals are passing away, he says our inner life, our souls are being renewed and are being strengthened day by day by day. So 
So the first problem with the externals is they're wasting away. And you know what? You know it. With the passage of times, your life slows down and deteriorates. Now, the second passage I want to read to you is, and this is my opinion, is one of the most interesting conversations that Jesus has in the four Gospels. And it's in the book of John, the fourth chapter, and he meets this, I would say, simple Samaritan woman at a well. What's happened is the disciples have gone into the, the town to get them something to eat, and Jesus is resting at this well when this Samaritan woman shows up. And Jesus has nothing to draw water from, and she does, and he asks her if he can have a drink of water. And she's surprised because Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. And so I would ask you just to take a second to listen to this conversation. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, but you have nothing to draw and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to life eternal. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, this is interesting. He completely changes directions. He says, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. That you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know, in this little incident, clearly you see a woman who had lived a very troubled life. You know, you'd size her up real easy. Married five times, currently living with a man. You know, she obviously had been looking for romantic love to satisfy the yearning of her soul. And she clearly hadn't found it. And what's interesting, and I think important, Jesus shows great compassion for her. You don't see any condemnation that some people would give. You know, it would be very easy to say, no wonder you're messed up. You've been married five times and you're living with a guy. He does, basically, Jesus focuses on the spiritual need in her life, not her external marital issues. He focuses on her inner life, her soul, and he offers her living water. The Spirit of God. But you know what, what's interesting, and this is pretty typical of us, is she doesn't get it. She thinks he is going to literally give her something to drink, something physical, something external that she could bring into her life and possibly make her life better, or at least, if nothing else, make her feel better. And that's a very typical strategy we have in this life. Something that can temporarily make me feel better. 
She was focusing on what Paul called the outer man. Jesus was focusing on the inner man. And this is so crucial to grasp, guys. Jesus reveals the problem and the inadequacy of the external things of this world. When he says in verse 13 of John 4, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. You see, not only are the externals wasting away, they don't satisfy us. You get thirsty again. There's a very popular magazine that's published in New York. It's called The Village Voice. And it, it basically announced all the new restaurants and the different Broadway shows and what's going on in New York and they have articles and there was an interesting one written by a woman by the name of Cynthia Heimel and she said she was reflecting back on all the famous people that she knew in New York City they were famous she had a, a number of friends who were famous movie stars and she was reflecting back on their lives before they became famous she said, one worked behind the makeup counter at Macy's. One worked selling tickets at movie theaters and so on. When they became successful, though, every one of them, it seemed, became more angry, more manic, more unhappy and unstable, much more so than when they were working hard to get to the top. And why is that? Listen to what she says. That giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with happiness, had actually happened. And the next day they woke up, and they were still them. And the disillusionment turned them into howling and insufferable people. You realize what she's saying? Once that they had achieved the ultimate, they woke up, and they were still thirsty. It hadn't delivered what they thought it would bring into their lives. They were still thirsty. And I would just say this, and I think you know this, and I think you recognize it the older you get. You can live in the finest homes. You can travel to the world's most luxurious tropical retreats. You can play the world's top golf courses. You can eat at the finest restaurants, drink the finest wines, have the greatest sex. But when all is said and done, when the thrill is gone, you wake up and realize you're still thirsty. And this is why Jesus offers to each of us, just as he offered to this woman, living water, which he says will be like a fountain in your soul. And please know this, guys, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about being religious, attempting to do good, day, good deeds to win God's favor. Because religion is as external as well because it focuses on nothing but external behavior. Historic Christianity focuses on the inner life. It's about the life of God working in the soul of man. And if you wanted to boil down everything that I've said this morning into one idea, into one simple idea, 
It would come from the simple words of Augustine uttered 1,600 years ago when he said, if there is a God who brought us into existence, then the deepest chambers of our souls simply cannot be filled up with anything less than Him. We'll read that again. If there is a God who brought us into existence, then the deepest chambers of our souls simply cannot be filled up by anything less than Him. So what I'd like to do is conclude with this. Please know that all the externals of life, if you've heard this, you've heard me wrong, that the externals of life are not corrupt. In fact, I would say most of them are gifts from God which He intended for our delight. The problem is, guys, they don't have the power to satisfy the soul. And God never intended them to. I think C.S. Lewis captured this most beautifully as he recognized we can never experience the true riches of life as God intended until He is the center of our lives. Lewis said, when one's relationship to God is given first place, everything else, including our earthly loves and pleasures, increases. When first things are put first, secondary things are not suppressed, but rather they paradoxically increase. And what's so interesting is Lewis, for years, searched for spiritual truth. He was trying to make sense out of his life. And what's interesting, he said, he felt like he was finally coming to the place of truth, only to find that truth was not a body of doctrine, but it was a person. Jesus. And Lewis realized that God was calling him to surrender his life to Jesus. And he struggled with that decision. Maybe many of you struggle with that decision. But you know what? He finally let go because in Christ he found the one person who could unify and guide his life. The very center from which life itself flows. And ultimately, C.S. Lewis found the living water. And he drank. And what's interesting, and I just discovered this last night. If you turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter, the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, and you go down to the very last verse, what God closes up the Bible with, you see this final invitation. The invitation that he makes to you and to me. He says this, Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And the question is, Will we drink or will we turn away? Let's pray.
Father, we're so grateful for what you offer us. Living water to satisfy the thirst of our souls. Lord, help us to realize that we need to drink, that we need to come. And yet we acknowledge it's so easy to be caught up in the externals of life that pull at us, that shout at us, that demand our time and attention. I pray, Lord, you'd give us the wisdom to drink, to surrender, to follow you. Because you promise when we do, rivers of living water will flow in each of our souls and we'll find the life that you intended for us to experience. We do thank you in Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.